This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The big budget bill for a cycling and walking bridge in Auckland last week sparked a big bike lash in the media and counterclaims this week that cyclists should be charged for using the roads, even the children. Well, you're not going to taxi your kids for riding a bike on the road, are you? Well, maybe, you know, they could work out something about a wheel sizes or something like that, you know. This week, Media Watch asks a journalist with the tricky task of covering urban transport, does the white heat generated by this highly politicised issue make it almost impossible to shed much light when covering it? But first, the first draft of a blueprint for cutting our carbon emissions sparked scare stories earlier this year about the end of cars, summertime barbies and even less dairy and meat for us all to eat. But none of that was actually in the report, so was the coverage of the final version this week any better? There will be a lot more public understanding about the issues and the trade-offs and the fundamental question that, that I'll keep asking people is, if not this by then, then what? By when? That was the Climate Change Commission Chair Dr Rod Carr talking to Media Watch back in February when the Commission released its draft blueprint for reducing New Zealand's carbon emissions. The idea was to get feedback before giving final advice to the government late last month, which the government in turn made public last Wednesday, which in turn made more headlines. Hey New Zealand, climate change is already hammering us and a new report says we need to make sweeping changes to cope. Now, back in February, the Commission was offside with the media from the start because Dr Carr and his team shrank the number of journalists who were given an early look at the report. Dr Carr explained to Media Watch back then they didn't keep the circle small because they feared the media, seizing on controversial recommendations while more significant stuff got sidelined. But he was clearly wary of that, and not without reason, as it turned out. Headlines about a shock ban on gas cookers and barbecues, for example, were thoroughly misleading, as were interpretations of the Commission's conclusions that farm herd numbers must fall by about 15% by 2030. Now, many in the media claimed that that would mean 15% less meat and dairy produced, even though the report said it wouldn't mean that. And even though Federated Farmers backed that up, there were takes like this on News Talk ZB. Or is there some greater, more deviant plan going on here? Are we going to be forced to be vegans? Or maybe it'll just be 15% of us uh, that have to be vegans, compulsory. And for the record, there was no compulsory quota for veganism in the report back then or in the one the government released this week. The recommendations that imports of petrol-powered cars should be wound down created more commentary than any other. Now, in other places overseas where cars are made and imported, like the UK or France, for instance... Similar targets for 2030 are already in place, yet back in February they were instantly dismissed as unrealistic here by some in our media. Oh, if you base it on something like Kiwi Build, I'd like to see it come in. The... And they're horrible to drive. If someone gave me a Tesla tomorrow, I wouldn't drive it. Now back then, as we heard at the start of the programme, the Commission's chair, Dr Rod Carr, hoped that by now there would be better understanding among the public and the media. So was there this time round after midday last Wednesday? Well, again, many reporters weren't thrilled about getting less than an hour to digest more than 400 pages of the final report before that press conference with the Prime Minister, who had her own responses ready to roll. I view the Commission's report as one of the most significant documents I'll receive in my time as Prime Minister. And after that, the time to quiz the PM about the report was pretty limited too. But the final report largely reiterated what was in the draft back in February, that farming and transport will have to change, along with energy use overall. 
The new report, though, took up less than 30 seconds of the midday news on TBNZ1 on Wednesday, and they described it like this. After getting 15,000 submissions, the Commission has made changes to its final report, saying its plans for agriculture and electric vehicles were too ambitious. Now, it is true that the new report had a lower target for EVs than first projected, and it isn't as optimistic about farming efficiency improvements, but the Commission had also underestimated how much land could be converted to horticulture, and it set more ambitious targets for cutting waste. Newshub's website at the same time focused on the cost of the switch to EVs in jobs, with the headline, Rapid Uptake of Electric Vehicles at Cost of More Than 2,000 Mechanics. But the EV switch also means plenty of expert technicians will be needed to mend those and manage them. Now, one bit of genuinely new news last Wednesday was just how much our emissions are now going up, though that didn't get much media attention. However, political editor Barry Soper did refer to it in News Talk ZB's midday news before he wound up like this. Uh, and um, she said um, the impact would be immense, widespread and catastrophic, including for New Zealand, and she highlights uh, drought, flooding, heat waves and wildfires. So... The apocalypse is about to come, it would seem, unless we uh, take this report seriously. And a detailed plan on how this country can try and hit those new targets is due by the end of the year. Though judging by the lack of sensational responses this time about the end of cars, barbecues and slumping food supplies, the media are, unlike our emissions, on the right track now. On the day of the report was released, Hayden Donnell took a look at the coverage on Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. This is an RNZ podcast. Last week, the Transport Minister cited the Climate Change Commission's advice, which he'd already seen but the public hadn't until last Wednesday, when he scaled back planned multi-billion dollar roading upgrades because of cost blowouts. This is the year in which the Climate Change Commission has handed down a draft report and now a full report to the government, which points the way towards New Zealand reducing its emissions. If we keep doing things as we have done them in the past, we'll get the same results. As it stands, transport contributes 47% of New Zealand's CO2 emissions, and emissions from transport have risen by 90% over the last 30 years. So there is a need for us to rethink the kind of projects that we are delivering. And with that in mind, the government does want to spend almost $800 million on a new Auckland Harbour Bridge just for bikes and pedestrians and links to existing cycle paths. And as we heard on Media Watch last week, that was widely condemned by commentators as far too much for too little gain, and many confidently claimed that bridge would never be built. And in a confusing column in last weekend's Herald on Sunday, where she seemed to say that the existing Auckland Harbour Bridge for cars was fundamentally unsafe, News Talk ZB's Kerry McIver said the cost of the proposed new bridge for bikes dwarfed the $30 million budget for a new bridge for flood-hit Ashburton. That would buy 26 bridges for Ashburton. They just want the one. Now there, Kerry McIver was echoing her colleague Heather Duplessy-Allen, who'd already said this on News Talk ZB last Friday. How can you announce this in the same week that Ashburton has its town cut in half, asks for a second bridge to solve that situation, and you don't say yes? But you could build 26 bridges for Ashburton for the cost of this one cycling path. 
the second bridge into Ashburton isn't even off the table because of commitments to the Auckland Harbour bike bridge. Indeed, the government's provincial growth fund recently shelled out nearly $100,000 to develop a business case for a second bridge into Ashburton as an option for the Canterbury Regional Land Transport Plan. That estimates a second bridge would cost about $30 million and just under another million would be needed for the land. But it's not the government's fault that that hasn't had a green light, whatever the actual cost might be. In 2019, the Ashburton Council decided it would fund only 20% of the new bridge and asked the government to front up with the rest. And Waka Kotahi, the New Zealand Transport Agency, usually funds just over half the cost of roadworks in the district, but media reports said the Ashburton Council wanted that to pay 80% of the second bridge cost. Meanwhile, some ratepayers, according to reporting by Stuff, reckon that even a 20% local contribution is too high. They reckon the whole thing should be paid for by central government. And last month, Ashburton's mayor told Stuff that the council has yet to officially ask Waka Kotahi for the money to build a new bridge anyway. But none of that was mentioned by Heather Duplessy-Allen or Kerry McIver when hitting out at the government on News Talk ZB last weekend for skewed priorities in the budgets for bridges. The next day, last Monday, the New Zealand Herald's editorial took a very different line on the new bridge for Auckland Harbour. The government will face criticism now, but its bet could pay off long term. Getting most people to move with the times will take constant explaining, cajoling, incentives and investments. Indeed it will, in the face of strident scepticism from News Talk ZB hosts reproduced in the pages and on the website of the New Zealand Herald itself and their columns side by side each week in the Herald on Sunday. On the facing page of the New Zealand Herald last Monday, readers were urged to continue the conversation with Kerry McIver on News Talk ZB that morning. However, she had Queen's birthday Monday off. But that afternoon, talkback caller Craig had taken note of her maths. They could build, what did they say, 26 bridges across something that keeps the um, economy going in the South Island. And, like Kerry McIver, Craig had his own insults for cyclists in the city. But these pricks are still riding on the road. Well, they're still allowed to ride on the road, I think. They are indeed, though they probably shouldn't around Craig. Auckland is not cyclist-friendly. And for goodness sake, if you're going to ride your bike, don't take up the road and use your manners. You're never going to win against the Mm. car. For ZB listeners wondering why we can't just get along and share the road and stay in our lanes, host Tim Beveridge feared the problem was this. Either side of the divide, you'll find dickheads, won't we? And that's um, that's the Listen, problem. I, used, I, used to, I hate the cyclists now, but I used to <laughs> ride my bike to school every day. But that anger about selfish cyclists runs deep in some of them, and several people called in to demand cyclists be registered and levied by whatever means. I, I totally agree with some sort of registration, a uh, transponder or something like that on the bike to recover fees from them. Caller Colin there said he had three motorbikes and three cars, also a motorhome and a truck and trailer. So cyclists should have to pay two, he said, even the young ones. So they should be paying ACC. What about kids? So, no, you know, we'd exempt children, wouldn't we? I mean, people who uh, ride bicycle cycling to school, you're not going to tax your kids for riding a bike on the road, are you? Well, maybe, you know, they could work out something about a wheel sizes or something like that, you know, to reduce the cost right down. But a, a child still... Uh, comes under ACC, don't they? <laughs> but after that, another caller, John, said callers like Colin and co were wasting their time. The cost of levying cyclists, he said, would be greater than the proceeds, and there was a better way, he reckoned, to make the bad cyclists accountable. The best way to identify an errant biker is to take a photo of them 
Well, if you're driving, though, you can't really do that because then you get pinged for using your cell phone. <laughs> Just pass ahead of them, take the car up, get out and take the photo as they come forward. You know, it's just, we've got mm. to be realistic here. Stuff reporter Joel McManus is the transport and infrastructure reporter for the Dominion Post in Wellington. This week he wrote an eye-opening long read for Stuff on just how fraught it's become in the councils and communities around the country and for people like him covering all this in the media. I mean, to some extent, agriculture and electricity get perhaps more attention. Um, But transport is absolutely one of those areas that is a really significant emissions source and actually an area where we have a number of levers to pull that are available to address it. Uh, But when those levers get pulled, uh, people react in ways that aren't always um, 100% rational. The reaction is always strong, um, and it's getting increasingly strong on both sides. I think you saw a more aggressive anti-cycleways push first, perhaps, um, but now there's almost an equal amount of frustration on the other side from both, you know, cycling enthusiasts, but also just climate activists, urbanists who want to see change in their cities and are getting frustrated that they're not the change they want is not happening. But a lot of the reaction in the media, I and mean, pretty clearly directed at cyclists, they are just not popular with drivers. For example, earlier in the program, we heard uh, Josie Pagani, um, pundit, she, she called it the worst decision the government's ever made when she appeared on News Talk ZB. And the fellow panelist at the time, Matthew Tukaki of the Māori Council, saying, um, Cyclists need to be put in their place, which is, and he's talked about their extreme arrogance. It's kind of surprised me that someone of a representative body like that would come out and say that sort of thing. But is this not at all out of keeping with the sort of responses you get when you cover this issue outside of Auckland? There's a certain brand of it uh, that differs region by region. I think central Wellington as a whole, is slightly more comfortable with active and public transport than the most of the country. The statistics bear that out. But we've seen the same sort of fights happen with the island-based cycleway here, for example, which became a very heated issue. It's a tribalistic issue, and you've, you, you've said it just, just then in the, in, the, in the framing of those quotes. People talking about cyclists need to be put in their place, cyclists this, cyclists that. People identify as a driver or a cyclist, and there are not a lot of cyclists in New Zealand. Two or three percent of people commute to work, and most of the time when you can think of someone as a cyclist, they're a cycling enthusiast who are doing it for recreation. Yeah, that's well, hence the, all those references to Lycra, right? So people think that maybe a sport or a pastime is being prioritised or something. You've also got that aspect, which kind of comes out with every piece of climate reporting, is that people feel like they're being asked to change their ways, People like driving. Driving can be very convenient. And any good transport network in a city needs to work with a number of options. And, you know, trips less than two kilometres, they're that big goal in climate change. That's the easy lever to pull that's just hanging there, the low-hanging fruit, is that if you can convert a certain number of those small trips to cycling or e-bikes or e-mopeds, that's a huge amount of the transport emissions in this country. That, that's been lost, and I think it's turned into you have to drive everywhere or you have to bike everywhere. Yeah, they were fascinating figures, those short trips. You could see more people seemingly inclined to take a bus or even walk if, if that was possible, and the one that hadn't increased was the cycling. If you're a planner, I guess you're looking at that and thinking, well, that's the one 
you want to increase, you get an immediate benefit because, you know, the appetite to do something other than in a car is there. We've actually seen walking and we've seen public transport increasing by a lot, whereas cycling hasn't really moved. And if you can move that from that 2% to 10 or 15%, that's the money. You know, that's, that's where you get those huge gains. So far, it hasn't happened. Um, in the mid-90s, particularly around then, we saw a big decline in kids biking to school. About 30% of secondary school students were, were biking to school on any given day in the 80s, and that's fallen to low single figures now. Um, which has obviously led to this whole generation where cycling just hasn't been an active part of people's lives. You see that in our city design is not designed with cycling in mind, which just sort of exacerbates this figure. So it's actually going to be a really big challenge, even just turning that 2 or 3% into a 10%, but the potential gains and emissions are really high. So you can actually look around the world at the gender split of people cycling in a given city, and it tells you a lot about how safe the city is you have a certain small group of people who will bike regardless, and they are heavily male, whereas you see cities with safer cycling networks, you see a much closer to a 50-50 split, you see a lot more children biking, you see a lot more women biking. Even in Wellington, we saw some numbers just quite recently, there was a 2014 survey which was done on this, and you had split people into groups, and you saw a group of you know, highly active cyclists who will who are cycling now and will continue to cycle regardless of what's done to the streets. And it was, yeah, like you said, very heavily male. And this group of people who would cycle if it was safer, they're exactly the people that aren't cycling now. Well, you've also reported about, you know, the big roading projects, Transmission Gully. I mean, that's made headlines on the Dominion Post mm. for years. I mean, a long, lot longer than you've been in the job. But uh, do you get uh, lobbied personally? Do you get I mean, are you targeted by people that want to have their point of view represented? Uh, yeah, they used to say, um, there's a saying in the newsroom that you weren't a transport reporter at the Don Post until you have your first transmission galley front page, and that's been going for <laughs> a decade now. <laughs> but, I mean, yes, I mean, cycleways, I cover, you know, obviously a number of issues, and cycleways are the one that I get the most accusations of bias uh, and when it's coming from both sides, it's probably a good sign as a reporter. Um, but yes, people are people are really heated uh, about the issue. And does it feel like there's so much heat on it that you can't actually get the data across all the facts that you'd like people to know in stories and reporting? Or is all the heat on it a good thing? There is definitely that really, you know, that really strong initial reaction that people get. But at the same time, the fact that it's a story people are heavily engaged in you know, means that, you know, people are more likely to be interested and want to learn more about the topic. You know, and it is going to be a topic that's a fairly big one going forward because Wellington's just passed this plan and set aside some money, but this 70 kilometres of cycling network still has to be built. And when every single one of them goes in, there's going to be debate in each local street and each local community about whether we should be giving up these car parks how the road should be aligned, whether this was going to cause problems with commute. And that's going to happen in every city in New Zealand as part of this climate push and just as part of cities becoming increasingly densified and needing to change their transport systems. And then we've got the scarce resources thing. So, for example, um, we had Kira McIver on News Talk ZB saying it was callous to fund this cycling bridge in Auckland because you could 
buy 26 bridges for the same cost to, for one in Ashburton, which has been damaged in the floods. Um, in the same time, she's saying, look, you know, pay the nurses, don't spend money on cycling. And you can understand that. Yet, you know, things like campaigns for people who have rare diseases and the drugs cost $400,000 a year, media swing in behind them and say money must be found to do this. And, and obviously... These are matters of life and death, you know, people's medicine for rare conditions, so I don't mean to trivialise it at all. But is there a bit of a different media attitude? Like, media seems quite happy to uh, to play up the scarce resources thing when it comes to transport, and yet if it's other stuff, they're happy to sort of back people's demands for um, money to be spent even if there isn't money in a budget for it. I mean, transport absolutely is and can be life and death, both in driving and cycling and any, in any form of transport. Um, a huge amount of money right now is being spent on road to zero. I think even in the Wellington Cycleways debate, it was the arguments of safety, I would say, that were more persuasive to the council than the arguments of environmental change. But, yeah, there's always going to be that argument, even at the local government level in Wellington, the pipes are the absolute go-to and, and the city's one of the city's greatest priorities, and so that's been a common theme. Why are we funding this and not funding the pipes or funding social housing? Like you've just said, at a central government level, there's always something else that money can be spent on. So you're not going to be short of stories for the the next little while. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, it's going to be a continued debate, and, and the fight over the value for money in that also has to incorporate the emissions value from any change um, you know, it's not just about transport times, but it's about climate initiatives, and it, and it's about the entire structure of cities. So it's it's not going to be an easy one. <laughs> That's Joel McManus, transport and infrastructure reporter for the Dominion Post in Wellington. The second person with COVID-19 has been admitted to Auckland's Middlemore Hospital. Ibid O'Driscoll is there for us tonight. And Ed, what more do you know? Mike McRoberts on News Hub at 6 on Friday. But reporter Ed O'Driscoll there had more to deal with than just the latest on those hospital admissions that day. Ed, the Ministry has made a move to reassure people about the vaccine today. What have they done? That's right, Mike. They've confirmed that there is enough of the Pfizer vaccine to deliver half a million vaccinations over the next five weeks. Now, this comes amid some uncertainty among people, particularly those in Group 3 who have been anxious to know when they might be receiving their jab. As a result, the Ministry has asked DHBs to send invitations to people within this group, inviting them to be vaccinated no later than the end of July. So they're obviously providing some reassurance tonight to people who might be finding this whole process quite complicated and confusing. Yes, Friday was an especially confusing day of news about COVID-19 and the vaccine, both for journalists and those worried about the vaccination timetable. Those concerns about availability led RNZ news bulletins that night, along with a woman struggling to get a jab for her husband. It's kind of like you've got to know someone or be someone in order to be shoulder tapped for a vaccine. It's not enough just to be sick as a dog. Anne Norris says she just wants consistent information. Don't we all? And for instance, on Friday afternoon, a red banner was skating across the Herald's website telling readers that some Aucklanders were being told they can't book their COVID vaccine at community centres until the end of July. 
The story also said that a senior clinician who didn't want to be named had told the Otago Daily Times that vaccine stocks were running low. Indeed, the ODT said that several people had told the paper that they had been told that that was the case in the South. And the paper said that health boards had been instructed to slow down administering the jabs, though a spokesperson for the health minister told the ODT that only DHBs which were ahead of their vaccination plans had been asked to slow down a little while stocks were tight. But all this would speed up again, according to the unnamed spokesperson, when a big shipment of almost a million more jabs arrived from Pfizer in July. Now, the Herald made the point on Friday afternoon that this didn't quite tally with answers that the COVID-19 response minister, Chris Hipkins, had given earlier in the week when he indicated that no slowdown was anticipated. And the Herald said that its readers had also been getting in touch with concerns about delays and they urged the readers to email the Herald's own COVID reporter in confidence if they had a story to tell. But soon after that, there was another red banner on the Herald site on Friday afternoon, this one saying that the rollout is to be slowed for prisoners and for some Defence Force personnel. And that followed the Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, appearing on the Herald's sister station, News Talk ZB, just before 5.30 on Friday. No, actually, we're, uh, we're still going to deliver over each of these next five weeks more than we've delivered in any week to date. So we're still ramping up, um, but what we're going to do is just make sure each DHB can deliver 100% of their plan okay. and honour the, honour the bookings. Now there, Dr Bloomfield was saying that this wasn't really a big problem, but RNZ's checkpoint was also concerned about all that on Friday afternoon. The Ministry of Health says stocks of the COVID-19 vaccine are tight, but there isn't a shortage. That's despite some saying they can't get appointments. Now after that, Lisa Owen pressed Dr Bloomfield to put a number on the available supplies. We continue to get weekly consignments. Understand, but you've got 189,000 doses right now and you've just put out a media statement that says you've got enough vaccinations to vaccinate half a million New Zealanders in the next five weeks. That's actually not correct, is it? Your projections, your hoped-for delivery, will give you enough to do that. But right now you don't. You have 189,000 vaccines. Well, with all due respect, I don't think it's... I think we're splitting hairs here. Of course, we have um, had and will continue to receive weekly consignments. So rightly, we are planning ahead uh, to ensure that the system is able to deliver the vaccines we expect to receive over the next five weeks. But while Dr Bloomfield gave Checkpoint the message there was no serious shortage and no slowdown overall, his interview on Newstalk ZB soon after began with this. Right, the government and the Ministry of Health officials are scrambling behind the scenes trying to reassure New Zealanders that we are in fact not running out of vaccines. As we told you yesterday, at the current rate of vaccinations, we are likely to run out of jabs by next week. And ZB host Heather Duplessy-Allen went on to say when we'd run dry. We have apparently, according to your numbers, received a million and 26,000 doses already. At that rate, we are going to run out, if we're jabbing at 20,000 a day, which is what we're doing currently, we are running out in 12 days. Yet the day before that on her show, Heather Duplessy-Allen had said we'd run dry of the vaccine a lot sooner. Looks like we're running out of the vaccine next uh, Monday, and this, as I say, is the whole country apparently possibly running out of the vaccine. Matthew Hooten has done the numbers for the Herald for an opinion piece that's in there right now. And that raised this question for Heather Duplessy-Allen. And why are we finding out from a Herald columnist and not the ministry or the minister's office themselves? Year of the vaccine, people. News Talk ZB. But the other key question, were those numbers actually right? 
Matthew Hooton's weekly column for the Herald's business supplement appeared online on Thursday morning. In it, he said this wasn't a conspiracy, just a matter of maths, that at the current rate of vaccination, the nation would run out well before the big July shipment, according to the numbers that the government and the Ministry of Health had made public. After publication, he reported that the Beehive had told him 100,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine earmarked for the COVAX program, which is intended to ensure supplies for poorer countries around the world, had bolstered our stocks for now, and that's something the government hadn't revealed until Matthew Hooton's worrying claim came out. The Herald then amended Matthew Hooton's column online to add that fact about COVAX, but Dr Bloomfield had also mentioned on Checkpoint and on Newstalk ZB, as we heard earlier, other regular smaller shipments arrived from Pfizer from time to time to boost our stocks. Over at Stuff on Friday, they ran the stark headline, No, We Haven't Run Out of Vaccine, under the banner of The Whole Truth, which is Stuff's fact-checking project about the COVID-19 vaccine. Senior data journalist Kate Newton concluded if we didn't get any further Pfizer shipments until July, then yes, we would burn through our existing stock sometime during the week starting on the 21st of June. But the numbers in the government's announcement didn't include the additional shipments it was still expecting in June, and the supply numbers had been updated on the 8th of June to show that, yes, vaccine doses were continuing to arrive in the country. Now sticking to the vaccination schedule will mean there's not much left over in the stockpile, but Kate Newton concluded, for now, the rollout is currently ahead of the government's self-imposed target, with no imminent risk of running out of the vaccine. Mark Dalder of Newsroom also pointed out in another fact-checking article that the COVID response minister Chris Hipkins had spoken out about those crucial regular deliveries in press conferences more than once, and that Newsroom and Stuff had also written about them more than once as well. So those at the Herald who published Matthew Hooton's alarming claim early and those at News Talk ZB who then amplified it clearly didn't know. While Matthew Hooton and the Herald were wrong about that, he wasn't wrong about information released to the public being incomplete and out of date and misleadingly on the low side. He said he sought clarification from the Minister's office of the key numbers and got that in writing and he didn't get contradicted. And that's a problem because the COVID response minister had explicitly told reporters previously not to rely on any data about the COVID response other than the data officials give to him to relay to them in official press briefings. The trouble caused by poor fact-checking in government and media alike was the verdict of newsroom's Mark Dalder. Now, at the start of the pandemic, the Herald's publisher NZME made a very public pledge to all New Zealanders, written by the chief executive Michael Boggs. We will maintain the highest journalistic standards as we stay focused on giving Kiwis the news and information they need, he said, and we are totally committed to keeping New Zealand informed. More than a year later, though, his flagship paper has now published a piece which amplified real fears and concerns about real difficulties with the vaccine rollout, and it took other media organisations to check the facts and point out the errors. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.